Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 14? This passage today will conclude the upper room discourse. It began in John 13 with Christ washing the feet of his disciples. It continued in chapter 14 after Christ had told them he would leave them and go to the Father and where he was going they could not come. Thus the disciples became distressed and afraid. Christ then said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and also believe in me. He continues to explain how he would not leave them fatherless. They would never be without the presence of God. Having defined the doctrine of the Godhead, the Trinity, and having taught them how he was in the Father and the Father was in him and they were in the Father. And he said, I and my Father are one. And if you see me, you see the Father. It's a tremendous teaching. He then promised them the Holy Spirit. The third of the triune God. He called him a comforter, a helper, but it all from, comes from the same Greek word, parakletos, which is... Defined in various ways, but it literally means the one called alongside. And so by the language, the promise is whatever you need in your life as a believer, trust the Lord, read his word, and know that he is called alongside to provide what you're needing. If you're afraid, he gives you courage. If you're in need, he is your provider. If you're weak, he becomes your strength. If, he, if you need help, he is your helper. And so on. In the greater context of the teaching of the Holy Spirit from Jesus, he's telling his disciples that it's better for them if he goes away. He can only be with them physically. But the Holy Spirit is everywhere, which reminds me to give you some advice that my seminary professor, Dr. Hollis Green, gave to us, his class, when I first began the seminary. He said, boys, <laughs> always go with the money. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. So, you know, just, <laughs> just keep that in mind when you come to make your decisions. <laughs> it is to our benefit that Christ would go to his father and thus become our intercessor, our high priest. And the Holy Spirit comes and abides within us. Not just to be with us here and there, but always and everywhere. 
be with us. And so in, in general, what he has taught them to this point, as you will recall, he has taught them, first of all, that the Holy Spirit will be the same presence as Christ is with them. One of the last things he says in Matthew, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's with us by his Holy Spirit and he is in the Father, the Father is in him. It's a wonderful thing to think that almighty God, God, by the presence of the Holy Spirit is there as Father and Son because of the Holy Spirit. So he's the presence of Christ. He's the, literally the presence of God in the lives of believers, in this case, the 11 who were left in the upper room. And secondly, he is our teacher. He brings truth to our minds and he carves the world into that which is false and that which is absolute truth. And it only is divided by the word of God. And so he promised to bring the crystal clear and perfect word of God to their memory and teach them all things. Thus we have now the completed canon of scripture, the Holy Bible, and it is strong and powerful. So then, now he says, next I want you to know that the Holy Spirit will bring you peace peace giver in my life, in your life, in Christ. Peace, arenen, peace. It's um, quietness, wholeness. The word means, it means that there aren't parts that are divided in a wholeness, a unity of self. A calm quietness. Christ says, peace I leave with you. Peace. The human race is otherwise at war with God. We're taught that in the Bible. We are at enmity with God in our natural and fallen state. If you are not saved, there is no peace for you. You are at war with God. And unless and until God intervenes by grace and calls you to himself, you will be at war with God and separated from God ad infinitum. However, and the passages are replete. I would not be able to quote the half of them in the New Testament about peace with God. Reconciliation with God. The gospel is called in the New Testament the gospel of peace. To reconcile, to be reconciled to God. In the fall of man... Mankind became at enmity with God. And now that 
enmity has affected the whole creation of God. But Christ has bequeathed to his own something that is not bequeathed to the rest of the world. My mother passed away in July of 2021. I was named the executor of her will. And there were some details in the will. And that will is only for those who are listed in the will. That's it. It's not for everybody else, it's just for those. Christ has left a, a legacy, a, a, a bequest for those who are in him. He gave to us, and look at what he says, I leave with you my peace I give you. He didn't have a lot of, he didn't have money to give to the 11 or property or what, but he gave them the greatest thing that those of us who are in Christ could have, and that is peace. First of all, peace with God. I'm no longer at enmity with God and God is not at enmity with me. I will not finally be separated from God and, and sent into the horrible prison of the lake of fire at the end of all things. But I will be present with God because I've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. My Lord, the blood of the cross has brought us peace. That's what Paul teaches. We are at peace with God. He starts out by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. These guys were divided and they were upset and they were jealous of one another. And now one of their own has been shown to be a, a traitor. They needed peace. Even as a believer, there are times when you get upset. And so what do we do? The ideal thing is to seek the Lord. To pray, to read his word, trust him, trust the father. That's what Christ did. He trusted the father. There's not a, as we go through the remainder of what the hours that are left in the life of Christ here before he's crucified. There's not a calmer spirit in the world than the spirit of Jesus standing in front of Pontius Pilate. As a matter of fact, Christ assumes the role of leadership. When Pilate says something like this, if you'll just give me a, an excuse of any kind, I have the authority to deliver you from all of this. To which Christ replied something like this, you would have no authority over me at all except it's been granted to you by my Father in heaven. This is what I came into the world for. So let's get at it. No calmer spirit in the world than that of Jesus facing this 
horrific time of passion and punishment, humiliation, and the worst kind of death in the world, crucifixion on a Roman cross. One of his own would deny him, cursing and swearing, the Bible says. He came to his own and his own received him not. The leaders of the Jewish faith turned their backs on him and, even, and then even conspired with the world power to put him to death. God, in whom there was no sin, nor could there be any charge brought against him. So then, in the midst of all of that, Christ would move with a peace that denies all comprehension. A peace that surpasses understanding. That's the peace that he has bequeathed to his own. Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give you. It's a deposit. It's a gift. It is a gift that Christ gives. It comes from God. You see? I give you this. This is a peace. He says, not as the world gives, I give to you. This is not an external peace. Since the fall of man, has the world really known peace? Well, of course not. It's laughable at how great nations and, and empires come together and sign a peace treaty and it's not worth the papyrus it's written on. Right back they go. There is no peace in the world. Isaiah writes twice and he says, the wicked will never know peace. The world doesn't know how to define peace. It tries in its own way. And the most pathetic thing is that these pursuits of peace, worldly peace, are are to the exclusion of God himself. They don't invoke God in these things. So it, it isn't the external things that bring, brings peace to the believer, that bring peace to the believer. It is an inward thing. It is a spiritual thing. Yes, my flesh gets upset from time to time over things. I don't know, once every six or eight years, I might even have an explosion of some kind. To my shame and humiliation. But in the midst of, of the times of getting upset or whatever, the Holy Spirit woos me and teaches me to seek the Lord, pray, and read his word. And in the course of that, somewhere along the way, this peace will swell up in my life. I am not happy with the way this country is moving. I'm not happy with the world and the way it's going. I'm not happy with how wickedness seems to have such a strong upper hand 
everywhere. And sometimes I get a little upset and then I pray and I read the word of God and I have peace. The kingdom of which I'm a citizen is not of this world. My king is another king besides any king who is on this earth. And when I stop and meditate on things and read the word, I know, you know, we're, we were told these things. We, we know where we are. God gives me peace. Gives me peace about it. This is a peace that surpasses understanding and comprehension. This is the peace that God gives to us. Christ has promised this to those of us who are in him. Exemplified here by the 11. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, I give to you. Now he goes back to his original point of chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it fear. Now there's an interesting um, anthropological, there's an interesting human perspective here in the language. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Parasesto, right up there. It's, that is in, in the Greek text, the way, the way John wrote it, it is in the imperative passive. It's a command. But what happens to the disciples is not something they produced. It came from outside and produced the results upon them. Their hearts are troubled because they've heard Christ say, that he's going to leave them. He's going to the Father. They can't come where he's going. He's going to be put to death. And these, these truths that have come from the teaching of Christ are presenting a situation that they didn't create. And so interestingly, it starts out, don't let your heart be troubled. Be careful. You know, you're not in charge of these things and they're going to happen. So Christ, first of all, gives it in the passive but then he adds this, nor let it fear, nor let it fear. Deliato. That is a word that is active. It is an imperative active. Now, this is what they do. Things happen. They didn't cause them. But they need to shake their head and scratch their head and say, but, well, okay, I didn't cause this, but I can't let it trouble me. This is what Christ is saying. And now I'm sure not going to let, let it make me afraid. So this is, this is an imperative upon the believer. Believers are not to be afraid. God is with us. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he says that after that beautiful golden chain of salvation where he takes us back before, before time, before creation and talks about how God did these things for us from time immemorial or even before time. So here, 
Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. You heard that I said to you, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father. Okay. So num- number one deals with the peace that Christ gives, as I have it numbered on the slide here. Number two answers the question, when is the Holy Spirit coming? He will come when Christ goes to the Father. You would have rejoiced that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Now think about this, okay. It hasn't happened, but they're just wee hours away from the arrest, beating, torture, humiliation, and death of Christ. Who these 11 and others, but these 11 have invested themselves in as the Messiah of the Old Testament who is supposed to be the ruler of everybody of all time. And they're going to have to witness or at least understand what has happened. They'll run in, in fear except for John. They'll run and, and Peter will take as much as he can and then he'll deny. And they're weak. So they're, how, how ashamed can you be? Oh, is this your... He's been, he's been so, so flogged on his back that his bones are showing. He's unbelievably tortured and he looks like hamburger meat and the crown of thorns pressed into his brow and he's been beaten on the face that is swollen and his eyes are probably nearly shut too. They spit on him and laugh at him and mock him and sell his clothes by gambling for them at the foot of the cross and then put to death between criminals. He saved others, the Jewish leaders said, let him save himself. What humiliation. You should have rejoiced because I am going to be exalted in a way that you would not believe. I'm going to arise from the worst of humiliation to the greatest of glory. And you should rejoice. I've told you before it comes to pass so that when it comes to pass, you'll believe. You'll remember somehow along there that I told you all this is going to happen and I'm going to my, to my father. Now what do they see As Christ leaves them, they see in his ascension the answer to Christ's prayer points of John 17. One of which Christ requested of the Father, give to me the glory that I had, restore to me the glory that I had from before this world was ever known. Eperthe. So they, in Acts, that's the word, lifted up. Exalted. We have a glimpse of it, I think, in Psalm 68, where 
it seems as though there are, there are walls of charioted angels that lead the pathway, that, that line the pathway into heaven. And this glory as he ascends, as he is lifted up, as he defies gravity, this glory comes upon him and enswathes him in a way that his disciples had never seen except perhaps for the three briefly at transfiguration. The two nearby said this same Jesus that you see going away will come again. This same Jesus in like manner. So what is he, what, how is he described in the revelation? Hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like brass, having a, a belt around his waist that's brighter than the sun itself with all power and, and the angels fall down and collapse in worship at his every appearance. The torches flare and heaven's trumpets blare wherever Christ may go. This same Jesus, you see him, will come again. You should rejoice that I'm going to the Father. That eternal dignity will be restored to me. That glory and exaltation and honor unlike the world can have will be mine for you to see that you've never seen before. You should have rejoiced when I said I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. You see, we're taught in Philippians especially that, it was, that, that the Son voluntarily submits to the will of the Father and he comes to be found in the form of a man and he dies even the death of, a cro of the cross. Paul writes to the Philippians. He ascends then his glory and honor and exaltation are restored. And if I read Psalm 68 right, those charioted angels. You remember there was a multitude of angels that sang or that shouted glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to men when he came into the, when in the incarnation. And now the armies of heaven are in rank and file and their king will pass in review as he ascends into heaven and goes back to the father. You should rejoice. And I've told you this so that when it comes to pass, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, but before that, when he ascends into heaven, when you see these things, you might believe. I will no longer speak much with you. So he says, the, to answer the question, when will the Holy Spirit come? I must first go to the Father and these things will happen. But before I, I do that, I have, a, I have a fight on my schedule that I'm going to go and engage the enemy. For the ruler of this world comes. The power of hell as much as can be assembled on earth 
is assembled there at the cross, at the humiliation, at the passion, at the suffering, at the beating, at the death of Christ. To scorn and laugh and mock, it would somehow, in a crazy way, apparently, seem to Satan that he has caught God in a human form and he can kill him. I don't know. You wonder what, he's supposed to be the, the epitome of wisdom and you wonder what in the world goes through. I'll tell you what goes through his mind. He doesn't believe the word of God. That's what's wrong with him. I have to go to the father and I have a fight that I have to go and take care of. But in me, he has nothing. He cannot, he cannot access me. He cannot accuse me. He can do nothing to me. The ruler of the world has always been there. He tried to kill all the babies thinking in Herod's day, thinking he would kill the Christ, the son of God. In the temptation, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself off, kill yourself. See what happens. Just always trying to kill Jesus. And then he filled the hearts of the Jewish leaders. Of course, the hearts of Gentile leaders, soldiers of Rome. He gave it his best shot. He bruised the heel of the seed of woman. That's the serpent. But if you really know how to give an effective heel stomp, though the heel is bruised, the head of the serpent is crushed. And that's what's going to happen. God's heel stomp. He has this fight. And he's going to have to do away with all of this intimidation and threat that the ruler of this world doles out and has since the fall of man. This is the last Adam here. The first Adam messed it up. As in Adam all die. So in Christ shall all be made alive. So then he says, I have this fight. But it's okay because I've already won the fight. The victory is already mine. That's what Christ would say to his, it didn't look like it. This is not to remind you of some Rocky movie where the bad guy bludgeons poor old Rocky until he has his second breath or second wind. I don't know what happens to it. This was always and forever from before the foundation of the world. Satan is allowed to put on Christ the punishment of my sin. It all has a purpose. It all has a plan. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That as Isaiah 53 would say, it would please it would please God 
to look upon the son on the cross, he would see his travail and be satisfied. Just then, Christ, who was sinless, would take on the sins of his own. Just then. But it was all part of the victory. Because now Christ in resurrection could give that power to all of those for whom he had died. Same power, same spirit. In me, he has nothing. So why then? Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Did you know this is the, if I, if I read it right, this is the only place in the Bible where the son says he loves the father. He obeys him. He follows his will. He listens. He prays to the father that the world may know that I love the father. And as the father has commanded me, thus I do. I love my father. From before the foundation of the world, my father gave to me those who are mine and has promised that they will come to me. And that even in the fall of the human race, yet still they will be mine and has promised to give me strength that he would send me to redeem my own. I love my father. And he has commanded me. And I am obedient to the Father. He has commanded me. And I have to create all things. That's how John 1 started. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things through him came into existence. The same was in the beginning with God. All things through him came into existence that has been made into existence. All it's his, he's God, he's a creator. The father has commanded things are made and that he would become a part of this creation. And in love for the father, he would love his own even to the end and beyond forever. The father has commanded him even to go to the cross. And then through resurrection, ascend and go back and thus intercede for us in heaven and go back and get his bride at last. As the father has commanded me, this is what I do because I love the father. That is the end of the upper room discourse. Rise up and let us go. From here. He has given to us the Holy Spirit, His very presence that is with us everywhere, collectively, together. Holy Spirit, the temple of God, the residence of God, the Spirit in our lives. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is the presence of Christ. He is the presence of the Father. He's the presence of Christ. That's what Jesus has been teaching. And he is our teacher. And he behooves us to accept absolute truth 
and then teaches us to understand it as we grow in Christ. And he gives us, in a, he gives us peace in a world of unspeakable turmoil where the constant attack from the world is made without end against God and his Christ and those in the world who are his own. Peace. Peace. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Jesus Christ is the son of God and he came into this world to save sinners. Perhaps somehow and in some way you are being drawn to Christ. If you've never come to Christ, oh, maybe today is the day of your salvation. Or perhaps you're here and as a Christian, God is leading you to come and be a part, a member of this local body of believers, Shiloh. In any case, as you exit this service, this room today, just across the hall, you will see deacons and their wives in rooms, a couple of rooms there. They are ready to receive you and to speak with you about that and to pray with you. And all things can be settled today. Let's stand together now, okay? Prayerfully all over this room and we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer.